Student research papers have been ubiquitous in higher education, but there are many ways in which students can demonstrate the skills that they have acquired. In this episode, we discuss the use of student podcasts as a more engaging alternative to traditional research papers. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Kane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer, and features guests doing important research and advocacy work to make higher education more inclusive and supportive of all learners. Our guest today is Megan Remmel. Megan is an assistant professor of political science at Bradley University. Welcome, Megan. Hi, thanks for having me. Our teas today are, Megan, are you drinking tea? I am not drinking tea. I had rooibos this morning, but I am now currently drinking my Coke Zero Sugar. It's not that much different than many teas. Yes. Many other rebels join us as well. (laughs) I have English afternoon today, John. And I have ginger peach black tea, a return to an old favorite as we move towards the end of our semester here. We're both getting to things that are comforting. Ginger is calming, so (laughs) you might need that at the end of the semester. Oh, very much so. So we invited you here today to discuss a podcast project that you've been using in your state and local politics class. Can you tell us a little bit about your project? So I was trying to think of a way to make students try to approach things in a more neutral way, because obviously in poli-sci, there's a lot of soapbox standing. And I'd previously been using just plain old policy analysis papers and students don't love them. And so I was trying to think of a way to get them to do the assignment that I wanted them to do and having some guidance because they've listened to podcasts before. So they kind of know what some of these are structured like. And so I was hoping that that would help tone down some of the opinionation that can come out of these things. And so I YouTubed and I found John's YouTube page (laughs) and found his podcast project and contacted him just out of the blue, asking him if he had any materials he was willing to share with me. And he did. And those came in very handy in terms of being able to guide students in the project. But it was just me trying to give them a different way to do something. Some of them still opted to do a paper this semester, but I wanted to give them the opportunity to try something different to maybe be able to say to someone in an interview that they've done something in this more kind of digital format. So it was trying to open up the possibilities for them in class. And was this a face-to-face class or was this an online class or a hybrid class? So the first time I tried to do it was last spring and that was a hybrid class and was admittedly a disaster. But that class was a disaster for numerous reasons. I think hybrid being the prime driver of that. So this class was entirely in person. I did allow them to work in groups if they wanted to. And some of them did and some of them didn't. And I had them do two rounds of podcasts. The others who wanted to wrote a paper and the percentages were equal. And so a number of them who worked in groups the first time around did not work in groups the second time around. (laughs) So they got to choose their own topics. I gave them a list of, I think, 10 topics from that section of the course. And so there were restraints, but I let them propose if they wanted to do a topic that was of interest of them. Somehow I managed to have a sports communication major in the class. And when we talked about special purpose districts, I mentioned to him that there are stadium districts where cities are basically using taxpayer dollars to do massive overhauls of stadiums. And so that's where he went. So it was still in political science, it was still state and local politics, but it was something of much greater interest to him personally than, say, 
term limits in state legislatures. Imagine that. I know. Shocking, right? So the students worked in groups. How large were the groups that they worked in for these podcasts? So I proposed having them work in twos. This class is a 300 level political science class, but it has historically been required for the history secondary education students and criminal justice students. Poli-sci students have gotten more interested in state and local politics, but I don't think they think it's as sexy as national level or international politics. So I think as they realize that's where the jobs are, they're getting more interested. So the audience is not kind of a typical political science class. Because of that, I have these history secondary education majors who, because of how tight their curriculum is, are in classes all the time and know each other really well and work together and collaborate pretty frequently. And so I did allow one group of three to work together. So I basically increased the requirements. So if they worked in a group of one, they had to have eight peer-reviewed sources that they could point to in the script. If they were a group of two, they had to have 12 sources. And then this threesome had to have 16 sources. And then it went from 10-minute requirement to 15-minute requirement to 20-minute for that three-person group. And the three-person group was actually probably the best podcast I got. And I obviously can't attribute it to whether it was just the number of them or they've also been some of the best students in the class this semester just generally. So I wasn't surprised that they did a good job anyway. So you mentioned a script. Did you have students submit a script before they recorded or was that done after the fact? So kind of both. I had them pick a topic and then they had them submit either an outline or a script and kind of gave the pros and cons where an outline is obviously a little more freewheeling and allows for a little more conversational style in the recording, whereas a script would be much more definitive. They wouldn't be scrambling for words necessarily, so they probably have fewer filler words. And they could be sure that they weren't fading off and losing track of what they were saying. So I gave them the option of either. I think the students who wrote scripts just generally did better. So I don't know if in the future, when I do this again, if I'm going to give the option of an outline or if I'm just going to make them write a script because those seem to just perform better. But with the script, I made them include works cited and they had to tell me where in the script or where in the outline, which source connected to that material. So I was trying to make sure that they were still using peer reviewed sources. They could obviously use stuff from outside of that, but I wanted to make sure they were still using peer reviewed sources the way that my policy analysis paper kids were but letting them do it in this less structured style in comparison to like an eight to 10 page policy analysis paper. How did students respond to having these options? I was a little surprised at how few students wanted to do the paper. (laughs) I don't know if they're just burned out from, I assume the last two years has just been a lot of online writing assignments, for instance. And so they were just scrambling at anything that didn't involve them having to write in such a structured way. So I have relatively few students select the paper option. So I'd say it was probably three quarters picked the podcast and a quarter picked the paper. And the ones that picked the paper, my pattern deducing seemed to be the seniors in the class. And I think they just wanted to get their paper done and be done and not necessarily have to coordinate with other people. And maybe they have prior experience with less successful group work, for instance, and they were just, I'm going to trust myself. But that was kind of the pattern where the underclassmen were more likely to do the podcast and the ones that seemed to be picking the paper were the seniors. Was there any apprehension about recording a podcast? Because when I've tried doing this, I know students are often a little bit anxious about things like, I don't know if I have the technical skills or have the equipment to do that. Yeah, well, what was great was in the material you sent me, you sent me a lot of options that students could use. So for instance, 
regardless of what they submitted to me in terms of the outline, I had them use, I think it was Otter's transcription. And so they were using some of the sources that you sent to me. And so I think they felt more comfortable. And as they went, I think obviously from the first round to the second round, the quality of the recordings went up and some of them realized that there's ways on their smartphones to record and that it will partly transcribe for them. So I think they got better as they went. I didn't try to ding them too much for production value in the rubric. So there is stuff in there just about like, please don't have insane amounts of background noise (laughs) in your podcast. Maybe don't record it in your car, something like that. So I tried to have a kind of minimum standard, but I wasn't going to hold it against them if it was kind of fuzzy audio, for instance. But they actually didn't seem all that apprehensive about the idea. They were better at it than I would have felt. So the burning question is, Did they move away from so much opinion and they're more neutral or did they stay pretty opinionated? (laughs) So actually it went better than I thought it was going to because spring 2021, when I tried this the first time around, I could not get them out of being on their soapboxes. And when I created the instructions for the policy analysis paper, I frame it as though you are working for a state legislator who knows nothing about the policy topic you're writing about. And They want a policy brief from you and then recommendations at the end. So the recommendations part is the quote unquote opinion part, but it's got to be based in all of the research that you've talked about earlier. So if it were about legislative term limits, political science agrees on very little, but this is one thing there's kind of universal agreement on is that they are bad and they backfire and do the exact opposite of what people want. So if that's what the research is finally saying, then the idea is that you would recommend to the state legislator to vote against instituting term limits in the state. So I found that they were generally able to do that. It took the scripts, that initial round, to be like some of this language is getting a little feisty. And some of this, I'm not seeing any citations behind it. So as far as I'm concerned, it's reading like your personal opinion. So I think that step was pretty necessary to get them to tone it down. I also had them submit draft recordings before the final recording so I could ensure that the script was improved upon for the recording. And so I could direct them if they were starting to go a little too far into the opinion editorial page of the newspaper. And so they were generally pretty good at it. If anything, I think they might have been overly cautious by the end of it, in that they had all this evidence about something leading to something and it was kind of repetitive. So feeling confident that that's actually what's happening, and still feeling like they had to do a both sides ism. So I think I'm going to have to try to work on that to instill in them that, no, you can take a position at the end. It's just got to be based in the evidence you presented earlier instead of just constantly pontificating. And once you have your students do that, could you have them work with some journalists out there? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. As somebody who gets interviewed pretty frequently with local media, I get a little frustrated with the both sides-ism. And yesterday I got interviewed a lot about the row draft and the reporters kept wanting to talk about the leak. And I was like, no, the leak is not the important part, guys. So yes, I understand some frustration there. Can you talk a little bit about how students either shared or heard each other's podcasts or whether or not the podcasts were shared more broadly? So inside Canvas, which is the learning management software Bradley uses, for the ones who gave me permission to share, I posted the files inside of Canvas. And then Strangely, and I don't know if it was because they were maybe afraid of the quality of it. Some of them let me share one podcast, but not the other podcast. And it wasn't necessarily like they wouldn't let me share the first and they would the second. I just think they thought I like this one better. And so you can let people share this one. And I didn't like this one and you can't share this one. So I just put them on the Canvas website. A couple of them told me 
the ones who got maybe low Bs, for instance, on the first one, because everyone did pretty well. The ones who got maybe high Cs, low Bs on the first one, they told me they went and listened to some of the other podcasts just to kind of see what the universe looked like. And one of them went, yeah, I realized I need to step up my game. (laughs) And so I think it was useful from that perspective. I don't necessarily think they were listening to it to learn about the topic that their classmates had done. But I do think it made some of them realize the quality of their work could have been improved if this is the comparison point. I think that's a useful benefit of any type of peer review of other people's work, that when they get to see what other people are doing, they might feel better about their own work. But more typically, they realize that there are things they could have done better. And that's, I think, a useful experience for everyone, including faculty. Well, I think students don't even realize that For all intents and purposes, we have to use them as guinea pigs from semester to semester to make a class better and to improve. So I realized that maybe the pure hybrid format of spring 2021 was not a good time to maybe experiment with assignments. And so it made more sense to try something now. And it's unfortunate that those kids maybe didn't get the best experience, but they are little guinea pigs. And we also need to learn from their work to see how we can make their work better by improving our assignments. One of the issues I've had when I've done this, I've only used it in online classes so far, mostly because my face-to-face classes are relatively large and I couldn't listen to two or 300 of these. But one of the issues I had was that for many students in the online classes, during the depths of the pandemic, it was the only time they really got to talk to other students. And I ended up with these incredibly long draft recordings, sometimes like 30 or 40 minutes for a podcast that was supposed to be quite a bit shorter. And it did add to the amount of time it took to provide feedback. And included in the rubric was a grade penalty if it was too short or too long. So I had to remind them of that. It was a tiny penalty. I think the length was only like 5 or 10% or so of the rubric score. But I felt bad docking them for that because when I listened to it, it was clear that they were just enjoying getting to know each other. And they were having these great conversations and getting to know their classmates. On the other hand, the focus could have been a little bit tighter. And that is one of the trade-offs about having a script versus something which is a little more free form. But it was really encouraging to hear the connections that students were forming. Although after many hours of this, I would have appreciated them being a little more concise in some of that discussion. Well, to your point, I'm curious. I'm not teaching this summer, but I am teaching an online intro to American government class this fall. And when I've taught it online before, I just used forum postings. And it's a lot of, I agree with this person, even though you have directions that tell them not to do this, I agree with what this person said. And I'm kind of wondering and thinking about tweaking this for the fall of kind of doing these voice responses in hopes that it might limit some of that just repetitive nature and get maybe something a little bit more substantive. Plus, it's more interesting for me than just reading the same post over and over and over again. And because it's in an online environment and it's asynchronous, though I do have weekly benchmarks so they can't access everything all at once, I think it would allow them to have a little bit more of the interaction than they get in the standard asynchronous typical shelf. So it's nice to hear that. I think I would also then have to say it was only supposed to be a 300 word post. So that's only like maybe two paragraphs. So we really don't need to give a war and peace sort of opinion, but maybe that would give them some of that more conversational style and make them feel like they're at least possibly getting to know some classmates, ideally with the idea that maybe they could talk to each other and go over course material instead of being in their own little silos. There's something about 
hearing a voice or seeing a face that can make all the difference. Of course, from your end, if you just make sure they have to post things in accessible format, you can either listen or read, whichever might be faster. (laughs) (laughs) What are you implying, Rebecca? (laughs) It was more fun to grade these, for sure. It was way more fun to grade these in a standard paper, without a doubt, because I could listen and giggle. Because some of them would throw in a little snarky bit and you don't get to have that in these really structured formal papers. So for me, grading wise, it was definitely more enjoyable. For me as well. It was much more fun. And my impression was students had a lot more fun with it than they would have had doing a written assignment. Yeah, I still feel like I'm going to continue to allow them to do a written paper. I know if I had been in their shoes, I probably would have still pursued a written paper. And I had a couple students in there who were just quiet as church mice. and we're probably never going to have the self-confidence to even attempt a recording. So I think I still need to provide the option, which I did not do last spring. And I think that's another reason why it might not have been successful is just given the, I mean, you guys know, class personalities vary wildly. And so that class was just very quiet and reserved and not super engaged. And so podcasts, probably not the best approach in that class in hindsight, but I didn't know that before they got into the class and I had built the syllabus. Yeah, those surprises do happen. They do. They do. And it's a little difficult to overhaul your syllabus quite that radically in the middle of the semester. There is something to be said, though, for pushing students a little out of their comfort zone. And in fact, this podcast in part got started because of a similar experience that I had where I was teaching in the Duke Talent Identification Program. I remember that. And they asked me to be on a podcast they had just started. And I said, well... I'm really busy. I don't really have time for this. And I don't think I'd really be the best person. So I gave them a list of people's names who they should contact to be on this. And I said, okay, we'll contact them too, but we'd like to interview you. And after trying to get out of it for a while, I agreed to do it and then realized it wasn't all that bad. And then I came back from Duke that summer and Rebecca and I were talking and I said, you know, I did this podcast and maybe this is something we might want to consider. And it's one of the factors that led into this. I wouldn't have probably have been doing the podcast had I not been pressured a little bit. (laughs) I feel something similar. 18-year-old me would not have done the podcast option. 35-year-old me, who's done probably 80 media interviews over the last few years, much more confident doing it now. (laughs) I think one of the things that I really responded to that you were saying, Megan, is that you were offering options and that there were two, that you did two podcasts or two papers and that if students chose a paper the first time, but then heard podcasts, there's a second thing. So they could do perhaps one of each, right? Yeah. So there was more flexibility. I did not have any of them do that, but at least it was a possibility for them. I feel like, I don't know if they misread the syllabus, but it was once I picked a path, that is my path. I am locked in for that path, but there was the possibility of it. So maybe some of them in the future will get maybe a little more courageous and go from a paper to a podcast. Or maybe they go from a podcast to a paper. To a paper. Whatever works for them. (laughs) Also true. Whatever is most appealing to their preferences. I really like what you were both saying, too, about personalities of students coming out and that when they might be writing a more traditional paper, it's just like entire personhood just disappears. (laughs) And that having that kind of positionality a little bit come out And their personality come out helps us to get to know our students better and to help them get to know each other better when they're reviewing each other's work. 
Yeah, there were some students in the class who in class itself were really quiet. And then I would hear these little snarky asides in their podcast and be like, where is that in class? I want that in class. Please give it to me in class. And they would often make connections to their own lives. They were trying to connect their own experiences to what they were learning in class, at least in the podcast they were doing for me. And those are exactly the type of connections we try to encourage students to make so that they recognize the salience of what they're studying. I think that was very helpful. Yeah. With my history secondary education students in the first half of the class, we talk about state level interest groups. And so I gave them the option to talk about the NEA and the AFT. And most of them picked it because I think they all know that they're probably future members of one, if not both of those organizations. And I don't think any of them realized how different those two organizations are. I don't think they realize not only currently how different they are, but the histories and the motivations behind them are entirely different. And so I think some of them may not join both of those organizations now (laughs) when they become teachers, because I don't think they like the motivations of one group necessarily versus another group. So I do like that maybe this is actually going to impact their workplace environments and actually how they choose to behave. Same thing with the second half of the course. We talk about tax policy, which I love, shockingly, not of super interest to them. And obviously, property taxes are one of the major sources of education funding for K-12. And so a lot of them picked that. And they knew maybe that it was bad. I don't think they realized how bad it was. And at least in theory, some of them seem to have a little fire lit under them. How quickly that the real world maybe extinguishes that is a different story. But at least for now, I think there's a lot of desire at least within these particular students, to try to change school funding formulas, for instance. So I actually looked at the roster in advance of the class starting and looked at the majors of the students to try to find topics that were relevant to state and local politics as a political science class, but that students of those majors would actually gravitate toward. To me, that seems like one of the most meaningful choices that you made in your assignment design, because that really hooks a student and keeps them engaged. Yeah, forcing them to talk about a topic they do not care about is hugely problematic. I teach our research methods class. And basically, if it's a quantitative social science paper, it counts. I don't care what topic it is. And they're just mind boggled. So one of them, he's a political science major, but he's writing his paper on how video games affect stress levels in people. And so they just get to poke around in stuff that they don't feel like they have permission to poke around in otherwise. The other thing that I found interesting is a design faculty who does similar things, maybe not a podcast, but we do things that are out in the public and we might share them, is that I often give models for students to look at that are professional. We might even analyze those together, but it's not until they see each other's that all the light bulbs go on. (laughs) (laughs) It's something about seeing a peer get it that all of a sudden helps bring the rest of the students along. And so they're always clamoring for getting to see each other's work. And it does improve the overall quality of the work, in my experience, overall. Yeah. Despite the fact that they might have these professional models to look at. Yeah, I did. Because of, again, John's instructions, I found state and local related podcasts and linked to some of them so they could see how they're talking about policies, but not being super opinionated about them. And I'm looking forward to now that I have permission to share some of these. I teach this class every spring, next spring, being able to give them these models of colleagues, basically, having done this work so that, yeah, it doesn't have the same production quality and there's no intro music and ad breaks, 
but they can see that their classmates have managed to do well on this and they too can do well on this. I mean, I always provide sample papers. I get permission from students and remove all their identifying information and post those so that students can see you can write a research design in my research methods class. It is possible. This was an A. This is what it takes to get an A. So I'm glad that a few of them gave me permission to share their podcast. And I think I'm going to share some of the better ones and some of the less better ones so that they can see for themselves the spectrum of possibility. And if they're cool with just putting in somewhat minimal effort, then that's what this podcast sounds like. And if you want to put in the effort that's going to get you an A, that's what this podcast sounded like. One of the things that my students have commented at the end of the class was that some of them have decided that they really enjoy podcasting and they started their own or they plan to do one in the future. Wow. And a few of them have also said, I never listened to podcasts before, but now I'm listening to these podcasts. So I was really impressed, but it did have these other side effects that I didn't really anticipate it having. I can't say any of them have told me that, but I'd love for at least for them to listen to some more podcasts because clearly that's all I listen to in the car. (laughs) So many podcasts. I've had similar experiences, John, although I haven't taught a podcast class. I've introduced students to podcasts as part of learning materials and having assignments. And many of them say that they really enjoy that format more than others, but they may have never really experienced it previously. Yeah, I can assign them a 10-page article or I can assign them a 30-minute podcast. They definitely like the 30-minute podcast better. They seem to actually listen to it in a way that they don't with the reading. So yeah, I've been more and more frequently been trying to find either like five-minute local NPR stories or outright organized podcasts for them to listen to. I've been doing more of the same. And I try to find podcasts that have both the audio and a transcript so that people can choose a modality depending on where they're working and reading. In some cases, it may be hard to find the time to listen to audio or they may be constrained in some way and they prefer reading the text. In other cases, students would much prefer listening to a podcast while they're walking or exercising or doing something else. So they have appreciated the choice when it's used as a basis for discussions or some other assignment. I hadn't even thought of that, but I'm going to have to think about that for the syllabi for the fall. The transcripts are really helpful, too, because if you are listening and then you hear the name of something or you're not really quite sure how to spell it or whatever, the transcripts can be really helpful if those transcripts have been edited, of course. (laughs) One thing I've always been amazed by are the number of people who say they only read the transcript. They never listen to the podcast because what I enjoy about it is a narrative and the ability to focus on a conversation while I'm driving or walking or something similar. And reading a transcript would be very much like all the other reading I do, and it just wouldn't seem as interesting. I agree, but to each his own. There's a few podcasts that I listen to regularly that I might go back and revisit in transcripts to pull out some notes of things that I wanted to remember. And so I really get very frustrated when podcasts don't have transcripts for me to do that. (laughs) Fair. To support my needs. (laughs) (laughs) This is about me. Thank you very much. It's important for accessibility purposes as well. Yeah, definitely. So Megan, you shared a couple of things that you might want to do differently in the future related to this assignment. Do you have any other thoughts about how you might frame or structure the assignment a bit differently to continue producing excellent podcasts in your classes? I'm curious about the idea of it's a 300 level class and I feel like providing them the topics was a little handholdy. 
And so I'm trying to figure out if I should let them pick the topics because then they have to work a little harder to figure out what might constitute state and local politics. Because I think you can see that in pretty broad ways. But I worry that if I do that, then they're just going to take some really black and white literal approaches. So I'm not entirely sure what I'm going to do on the topics front of things. And it might just, again, depend on who's in the class. I think if it were more of a straight up political science class, I'd let them maybe wander a bit more. But since that's not the audience of this class, typically, I might try to give them a little more structure since they're probably of all people going to go, I don't know what you want from me in a class that's not directly my major. So that's thing number one. I am also trying to figure out for the groups for when they recorded together, given that some of the groups fell apart in the second round, I've never had great success with peer review because they don't seem to want to be telling the truth about each other. And so I'm trying to figure out how to get around that because it was pretty obvious with one group in particular that someone was doing all of the heavy lifting, but that person wouldn't fess up to it. And so I'm trying to figure out if I should allow them to work in groups, and if so, how to try to ensure that the workload is being done somewhat more equitably. Because when I've had them work on group projects that have involved writing, for instance, I can follow the Google Doc because I've required them to give me access to something like that, and I can see who's adding and what. I'm less able to do that in this scenario, so I'm trying to figure out how to maybe in the script writing process, still have them share it as a Google Doc so I can follow the trajectory of who's adding what when in an effort to try to get a better handle on making sure that one person is not being carried through the assignment. And that's just, I think, a general struggle with trying to grade group work assignments. But that's the only thing that I can think of right now. And I love advice, but the only thing that I can think of right now to try to address that a little bit. And I knew it was going to be a problem. I just didn't know quite what to do with it. Well, you can follow the editing history. That can be a bit of a tedious path through that. What I've generally asked students to do is just to use a color code where they pick a dark color. So there's still good visual contrast to meet accessibility issues, but they each have their own color that they write their text in. So when they write a section of a document, just have them block it and choose their color. And then when you read through it, all the dark blue will be from one person. The dark green will be from another person and the purple will be from a third. And it makes it a whole lot easier to evaluate the individual contributions. And that's worked really well. That is beautifully simple. And I appreciate that. Thank you. I do a couple of things also. I do a lot of group work and group work that's not always visible. So I often have shared documents where it makes sense and ways of documenting. But I've also done things like having students keep timesheets, just recording what they're doing and when and how long it takes with the frame that it might be helpful for them to better understand where they use their time. And so that sometimes is helpful. We also tend to do things in design more like a process document. So it documents the process and milestones and summaries of what they've contributed at various points. And so I find those kinds of documents really helpful to understand what people are doing. And I always request them to provide a little bit of information about why they made certain decisions. And as soon as you do that, then you know who did it. it becomes very clear. And the other thing that I do is a Google form as review of the other collaborators. But I do things like ask questions about how willing they were to accept feedback. What was their greatest contribution? So it's framed in a little bit different way than maybe a traditional writing system. Like, did they do all the things? Yeah, it sounds more, what did you do versus what did your partners do? Yeah, it's more aligned with how 
you might do evaluations in a workplace or something rather than maybe traditional peer-to-peer evaluations. Those are awesome. Thank you. Megan, was there anything else that you wanted to make sure we talked about? No, I just want to thank John for being so willing to share his materials with me because I would have been floundering about how to start. I was really happy that someone requested it. It was great. Thank you so much. Well, we always wrap up by asking what's next. I think I've got a lot of material to work with with state and local politics, given the recent political landscape, maybe too much material to work with in state and local politics. I think one of the things in the future, and I'm nowhere near this yet, I'm interested in letting them explore alternate methods of this podcasting style. So maybe actually interviewing local candidates, working with political parties. The League of Women Voters is actually very, very active in Peoria, and they still subscribe to being nonpartisan. So it would be nice to try to team up with them and see if they've got some sort of outreach campaign they'd like to do. So I'm thinking of trying to really expand, but next year's busy, so that might be the year after. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. And I'm really thrilled that someone actually found that material useful. (laughs) It was. It was great. (laughs) It's an activity I've been doing with my class for three years now, and it's been working really well. And I've really enjoyed it. And many of the students really have, too. Yeah. Time two was the charm for me. Yeah. You have to have a practice round. Yeah. Unfortunately, those students were guinea pigs, but I learned from them. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teaforteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer. Editing assistance provided by Anna Kroyle.